Hello, hello, hello. I don't know where the buzz is coming from. There, mine's off. We'll just use this. That's fine. All right. Um, so Jason texted me a couple of weeks ago, and he says, hey, I'm going to be gone on the 24th, and was wondering if you would want to come and share about some of the reasons that we can know that Jesus actually rose from the dead, being that it's right after Easter. Um, and so naturally thinking, oh, so you want me to come and share evidence for why the most important event of all of history actually happened? Sure, that sounds great. Um, and so I was excited to be able to be a part of this. And um, with that, to give you a little bit of my own background, um, I was born and raised right here in Fort Collins. It's kind of funny to me. Um, I live now in a house that's literally a half a mile from the exact place I was born. Yet at the same time, I've been lucky enough that I've been to over 30 countries. So you would think that I'm like a homebody, but I've actually been able to do a lot of traveling. Um, I did a one-year missions trip that went to 11 different countries straight out of college. Um, and then my first year out of high school, I went to a one-year Bible school that was essentially in Hogwarts in England, um, which was a really cool opportunity and was, was the funnest year of my life. Um, going to school with all these people from all over the world was, was just an amazing experience. Um, and then since then, I kind of came back from that missions trip. And when I was there, I was able to just really um, figure out, okay, what's next? What am I going to do? and started to look more into apologetics. So apologetics is just kind of a fancy word for giving a defense of the Christian faith, looking at history, science, and philosophy. Um, and that's been something that I've been interested in for a really long time. Um, I started into a seminary school to study apologetics. I had done a philosophy major at CSU. Um, and so I graduated with a master's degree in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. Maybe if I stand here, it seems like maybe there's better spots. Um, and that was, that was really great. And then I started to figure out what am I going to do? Where am I going to go and do ministry? Looking at different campus ministries. Thank you, Spada. Um, and eventually found a group called Ratio Christi, which just means reason of Christ in Latin. And so I've been working with them for the past six years. I started the chapter at Colorado State. And then I've been overseeing the last year or so, um, four other chapters here in Colorado, and then oversee any of the other area directors over a total of eight states. Um, and so that's a little quick overview, overview about me. Um, and so today, what we are going to talk about is kind of the evidence of the resurrection. And the first thing that I wanted to kind of think about, so I am very new here to, to Rivers. But I can tell you, even growing up in a household that knew the Lord, that really talked about grace well, there's something about the way that Jason and others have really proclaimed the message of grace that has just clicked here with me in a way that I don't think I've ever experienced it before. And I think an important thing to remember in all of this is sometimes we can take that for granted, especially when we're in a church that proclaims that message so well. But this is a message that is wholly unique to Christianity, and it really distinguishes Christianity from every other worldview, every other religion out there that we can't just take for granted. This distinguishes Christianity from anything else. We can look at 
some of the views of other religions, we see something like this. For it is by grace you are saved after all you can do. And that maybe sounds a little bit like a verse from scripture, right? This is actually coming from the Book of Mormon, Second Nephi. And w- when you think about what this is saying, it's saying, for you're saved by grace after all you can do. So that en- ends up being an entirely different message because now it's, I have to do everything I can, then I'm saved by grace. That's totally and completely different. And so then I realize if I'm saved by grace after all can I can do, then in some sense what it is is, then if I went to a movie and I could have been at the homeless shelter, I didn't do all I could do. And I wouldn't be saved by grace. That's not the same message. Or you can look in the Quran and it's even more plainly said there. And the measuring out on that, that day will be just. Then as for him who measures good deeds is heavy, those who are they shall be successful. And as for him whose measure of good deeds is light, those are they who have made their souls suffer loss because they disbelieve in our communications. Do you think of those cartoons you remember as a kid that you'd see an angel on two shoulders? That actually comes from Islam. That literally it is you have one angel on your shoulder keeping track of your good deeds and another angel on the other shoulder keeping track of your bad deeds. And when life ends, it's a question of whether your good deeds outweigh your bad. And if they, your good deeds outweigh your bad, then you'll go to heaven. But if they don't, then you will be eternally separated from God. That's why this whole Christian message is something completely unique, completely different than anything else has to offer. So instead, our message is this, that you are saved by grace, not by works, so that no one may boast. And that changes everything, because now even in the things that I struggle with that I'm looking at and I'm saying, God, I'm trying to rid this of my life, but I know, I I promised I wouldn't do this again, but here I am, I did it. And you feel that heaven burden and that guilt. Well, if in the end I'm not saved by my works, I don't have to live in that guilt and shame because guess what? It's not about me. It's not about my works. It's about his work and what he's done suddenly that guilt and that shame is not a burden I have to carry anymore. It's a burden that's already been lifted by what Christ did on the cross. And so in the end, then, what we see is that this resurrection, this story of Christ's resurrection, it all lies on that. Because in the end, okay, I can get this concept of grace. I can understand that. But we all kind of have a realization in some sense that we look at it and say, I feel like there needs to be justice. When I've even done something wrong, I kind of understand that there should be retribution for it. There should be justice for it. So there has to be something. It can't just be forgiveness and that's it. But that's what the cross is. That's what his death, burial, and resurrection is. And that allows that grace to be a possibility where it's not a possibility outside of that. So if Christ hasn't been raised, this whole grace thing that we believe in just wouldn't be true. And so we should be able to have reasons to know that we believe that this is true. Christianity stands or falls on the belief that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. This is another thing that makes Christianity wholly unique compared to every other religion. When I look at every other religion in the world, I can actually even take away the founder of that faith 
and that faith would stand just fine. Joseph Smith, if he never existed, Mormonism could still be true. If Muhammad never existed, Islam could still be true. But if Christ never existed, or even if Christ existed, but he never died and rose from the dead, Christianity is false. It all rides on that. Which, interestingly enough, from a scientific or philosophical standpoint, starts to already give it reason to believe, because scientists and philosophers will tell you something becomes more reasonable when there's actually a way to disprove it. So the question then is, can we disprove it, or do we have reason to believe in it? But I want to even just hit one more time. Looking C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this really well. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. This message of grace, either it means the world and it changes everything, or it's a lie and it means nothing. So, do we have reasons to believe in this? When I'm on campus, I will run into constantly people that will say, you know, I think this whole Christianity thing is really just based upon pagan myths that predate Christianity. This might sound really weird if you haven't already run into somebody who's thrown this out there, but this is a common belief on college campuses, that they will say, somebody like Osiris or Horus or Anubis or all sorts of other deities actually predate Christianity, and they're these gods that died for their sins, died for their people's sins. And that's the claim that they're going to make. So let's see. First off, before I even get to that, I jumped a little bit ahead there. Um, <coughs> does Corinthian, do, do we see scripture agrees with this idea? that all of it depends on the resurrection. So turn with me if you got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verse, starting in verse 12. <coughs> Paul is talking, and it's an interesting thing, in Corinthians, he's writing to a church that is pretty messed up in a lot of ways. They're not an example of what we would think of a good church. They're literally one of the, one of the things that Paul is writing to them to correct them on is, hey, uh, I'm glad that you're taking communion and remembering Christ by taking communion, but stop getting drunk off of it. They're, they're not the picture of church that we imagine. But at the same time, the way Paul starts his letters to these churches is to the saints, which should tell you already that, hey, why are they called saints? Is it because they're saints by their own actions? No. They're saints by what Christ has done. That's why they're proclaimed saints. So Paul's writing the, this church. That gives you an idea of who he's writing to. And he's correcting them on theology. He's correcting them on some of their actions. And this is what he starts to say in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some people are just saying, I don't think that resurrection happens at all. When you die, that's it. It's over. You're done. And he's looking at it and saying, if that's true, then Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead. That's a huge problem. He goes on and he says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain as your, and your faith is in vain. Grace cannot exist. If Christ hasn't been risen from the dead, grace is not a thing. It is just simply impossible. Going on, he says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So God puts his righteousness on us only if, only if, Christ has risen from the dead. If he hasn't, if he hasn't died for us, then that righteousness cannot exist in us. It's impossible. We are still just as corrupt, just as sinful. We are not a new creation. The old is still here, if that's true. So, then he goes on and says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Then that's it. If, if anybody is a Christian and they died and we're, we're having a funeral service and we're saying, hey, we can look forward to seeing them again in the afterlife, that's just not true. If Christ has not been raised, that's not true. We will not see them again. That's over. There is no hope. There's nothing to look forward to after this life. And then he finishes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I think of pity in some sense, it's kind of like that child that you see that has their imaginary friend, you know, where you're like, okay, that's, that's great. I'm in some ways, like, I'm happy for you, but you're also kind of like, oh, like, I'm sorry, baby, that that seems to be the, f the person that you say is your best friend because they're not, they're not real. Well, if, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then you and I are coming to church every week. We're reading our Bibles. We're, all of the things that we're doing to follow Christ is in proclamation of our imaginary friend. That he doesn't really exist. At the very least, not in the way that we're proclaiming him. So, some people might look at this and say, I don't think that really we have to believe that Jesus is literally risen from the dead. It's just an analogy. It's just a story. And I have to just look at this, these passages. I do not see how anyone, and I've heard it said, when, it, when I was at CSU, I had a philosophy class. We studied Christian history. And in that class, the teacher, who was a proclaimed Catholic, said that Christians don't actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's saying he's Catholic. I'll tell you that's not the Catholic view. We might have some things we disagree with Catholics on, but that's not one of them. <laughs> okay? So, but this is the thing that people will put out there. They'll say, I, I don't think it's supposed to be literal, or to go back to where I jumped again a little earlier. I think it's really based upon pagan mythologies that predate Jesus. So there'll be these stories of a God that was baptized that was crucified, rose from the dead in three days, that his death is supposed to atone for the sins of the people. And these stories supposedly predate Christianity. So an example of that is, wow, I'm skipping all sorts of stuff. Um, we're just going to go to this, okay? So an example of that is Horus and, or, or Cyrus. Osiris says, according to people, that, Three wise men appeared at his birth. 
that he was called the good shepherd, that his flesh was eaten as a communion and of remembrance of his death, that he was crucified specifically, that he resurrected after three days, that then it gave purpose to his death because it saved his people, that he wandered under, under trial before it all happened, and that he was resurrected in the same body that he was killed in. Okay, so if you're looking at that, and we know Horus, he's one of the Egyptian gods. So he's before Jesus comes onto the scene historically. That seems like, okay, that could be a pretty good objection. That could be some maybe reason to kind of doubt this whole Christianity thing. But let's examine whether or not that's actually true. Because here's the thing, most of the people that are getting that evidence, you know where they're getting it. They're getting it from a nice documentary off YouTube called Zeitgeist. It's a great source, right? If it's on the internet, it's gotta be true. Well, okay, if we examine the actual mythology of Horus, just as an example, because we could talk about all of the different deities that people will proclaim is that Jesus is a copycat of. So three wise men, they claim that because there's some stories about Orion's belt with the three stars and that those are three kings. There's no mythology that connects those to Osiris at all whatsoever. And even in Christianity, uh, we don't really believe it's three wise men. We know that there's wise men that came with three gifts. Doesn't say how many there were. So that doesn't really line up. That he's called the good shepherd, uh, there's nothing in ancient Egyptian mythology that actually calls him a good shepherd. He's shown holding a shepherd's crook, which in Egyptian mythology just puts you in the place of a leader, but he wasn't a shepherd, and he was never called a shepherd. Um, that his flesh was eaten at communion, that's just, again, not true. There's no historical record of that. Um, that he was crucified, actually he was killed by the God set as vengeance against him. So this isn't an atoning thing, this is a, a vengeance killing of one person being mad at another person. That's what's going on. That he's resurrected, well, the way he's killed is not crucified, he's chopped up into pieces, and then set Anubis and Isis bring him back together, and then he rules the underworld. So he does have the same body in a sense, but he actually doesn't resurrect in the sense that we're talking about Jesus rising from the dead and living here again on earth. He's given life to rule the underworld. He doesn't live on earth. It's not really a resurrection. It's just an afterlife. That's what's going on. Um, that there's purpose in his death. No, there's no trial that he experiences. So none of these things that they're claiming are actually true. So the claim that they're somehow a mimicking were somehow having these stories that after a long period of time, people start saying that Jesus died and rose from the dead just to copy these pagan, pagan mythologies that were really popular at the time. It's just not true. The parallels aren't even there. What gets even more interesting is then if it's going to supposed to be expounding off or growing as an evolution, so, so to speak, of the story, well, that doesn't also fit either because you would expect that to be a long period of time. But when it comes to 
Jesus dying and rising from the dead, the very earliest things that we have say that that's what happened. This isn't something that was proclaimed later, and before we were just saying he was a good teacher, and he talked about the law. From the very start, we see that Christians were saying that Jesus died and rose from the dead to save sinners. So here's an interesting thing. Going back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, this passage is the oldest Christian creed in history. So historians, and I'm not just talking Christian historians, they read Corinthians. You see that Paul is not really the most smooth of a writer. He's choppy. He's not one that as you read the Greek, you're like, wow, this guy's just an exceptional writer. He gets his points across, but it's not poetic. But what's interesting is when you get to this passage, that changes. And suddenly it becomes very poetic. And what historians realize, what that means is actually he's not writing down his own thoughts. He's writing down something that's been given to him, which is exactly what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's telling us this is a creed. And so the, even the most liberal of scholars, a guy named Bart Ehrman, who's probably the one that like everyone who wants to say that we can't trust the Bible goes to Bart to try to make their argument. And what he says about this creed, he says this creed's probably one to two years after Jesus' death, which compared to most writings in history that are usually written down maybe a hundred years after the events that they're talking about is incredibly close to the events. So then someone who comes along and says, actually, I think that they made this story up and they changed it, are just not looking at the evidence. So seeing as though this is a creed, this is something that probably the early church memorized and they said together, we're going to say it together. So read this with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So what's that that is telling us is not only did he die and rise from the dead, but even the reason for it is proclaimed from the very get-go. This isn't, this isn't made up later or grown upon later. This is what the Christians were proclaiming from the start. So now you still might have someone who's just like, I'm unconvinced. Maybe they believe that, but that doesn't mean it's true. So being an apologetics guy, we're going we're gonna to just talk about five facts. Now, we could talk about a lot of other evidences. When you examine the evidence of the resurrection, there's probably 12 different things that we could talk about. But the five things that I'm going to give you, the reason we're focusing on these is because I, I think in some ways, if you can win your argument without bringing in all the evidence, then that shows you have a much stronger case. And in some ways, I do this as well because this keeps it simple. We could have talked about the Roman guard and how probably 12 fishermen trying to take out the most elite military force in order to steal the body probably isn't reasonable, but I don't need to. In order to prove my case that Jesus rose from the dead, I don't need to talk about that. 
and that's a little bit harder fact for me to establish. So these facts that I'm going to share with you guys, these are facts that scholars agree on. And I'm not, again, I'm not talking Christian scholars. I'm talking, again, guys like Bart Ehrman would say these are true. And if these are true, the most reasonable explanation of these facts is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So let's take a look. The first one is that Christ died by crucifixion. If I want to prove that somebody rose from the dead, it's probably important to make sure they're dead. We got to start there. So when we start to examine the evidence for this, not only do we obviously have all the gospels that proclaim that, and somebody might try to throw that out and say, well, these guys are on that side, so they're going to say that. But I can also look at other sources. So there's a guy named Josephus. Josephus is a historian. He's writing for the Romans, and he's in that area, and he's viewed as one of the best historians of the time, and he's also Jewish. So as far as him giving anything that's going to be convincing to our case, that's going to be really helpful because when any, anyone who's an enemy is going to supply evidence for your case, that makes your case very strong. So when you think of Josephus, one, he's Jewish. So being Jewish, he doesn't want to give any evidence that would convince this crazy new Jewish sect, Christianity, that Jesus has risen from the dead because that would prove their belief that he's the Messiah, and as a Jew, he didn't believe that. So he doesn't want to give any evidence of that. And then as a Roman, he also doesn't want to do that because they're proclaiming that this Jesus guy is the king of the Jews, which is a threat to Caesar. So if he gives anything that we can use to prove that Jesus actually did rise from the dead, that's pretty helpful because we have no reason to doubt his testimony in that. So Josephus, when he's writing, one of the things he says, they reported that, they, that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. So Josephus, he's not saying that Jesus did rise from the dead, but he is saying that the disciples believed he rose from the dead and that he was crucified. You also have Tacitus. Tacitus is a Roman senator and historian. And he writes that the founder of the name of Christians was put to death by Pontius Pilate. So not only is proclaiming that Jesus was killed, but he's even agreeing with us as of who did the order. So we have these historians that are giving arguments for it. Lucian, who's a satirist and rhetorician, he also writes, they still worship the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult to the world. He's calling it a cult. Clearly, he's not on our team, right? But he is saying that he was crucified in Palestine. Marabar Serepion, he's a Roman Stoic philosopher. He, he gives this whole analogy of these different people like Socrates that the Greeks put to get death, even though he was one of them. And then he talks about Jesus alongside that. And he says, what advantage did the Jews have from executing their wise king, Jesus? It was after that that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. And he's referencing Socrates, Jesus, and one other person. So he's looking at it, and he's saying, yeah, this guy did die. Even the Jewish Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, talks about Jesus and says, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua was hanged. So we have no reason to doubt that he's killed. That's a good place to start. Okay. Well, most of us would probably agree that he died, 
even if you don't believe he rose from the dead. We need better evidence than that. The next thing is that the disciples believed he rose from the dead. This ends up being important, and you might think, okay, well, they're on the side of Jesus, so, of course, that's what they're going to proclaim. But what's interesting to look at is it's one thing to die for something that you think is true. We think of the Muslims who flew the planes into the towers. They wouldn't know whether Islam is true or not. They didn't live during the time of Muhammad. They could just be honestly mistaken. But when we're talking about the disciples, they were there. You don't die for something that you know is a lie. Liars make poor martyrs. And so there's no reason to believe that these disciples died for something that they knew was false. And so that starts to give us even better evidence that clearly, clearly, Jesus has risen from the dead. Because why would these guys go around proclaiming that? Another person is Paul. And we see that Paul also believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Now this starts to get way more interesting. Because Paul, he's moving up in the ranks of the Jewish people. He's studied under Galimelel, who is the best Jewish teacher at the time. He has all reason to think that he's going to become one of the most powerful Jewish people in the world at the time. And instead of continuing on that sect, and continuing even in persecuting the church himself, that's why he's pictured with a sword here, to remind us that he persecuted the church before he came to Christ. And so, he is moving up the ranks in the Jewish people, he's persecuting this group, and then all of a sudden he joins that group. Why would you do that? Well, one of the things that's interesting to look at, if you're investigating someone who may have been lying about something or committed a crime, the first thing the cop is trying to figure out is what is their motive? What is the reason why you're doing this? So we know that motives kind of fit into just three simple categories. You're either gaining power, money, or sex. Those are the three things. The motives for any crime whatsoever gets into those three categories. So let's think about Paul. He's moving up in the Jewish ranks. He's growing in power. He's probably growing in wealth as a result of that as well, especially with the way that we knew that the people of the temples were taking advantage of the people with sacrifices. So he's gaining money and power, and he leaves that. And what is his reward? He's beaten, tortured, and killed. That sounds like a great list of motives for me to join group, doesn't it? No, I'm just not, I'm not going to join that. And then what's interesting, especially with Paul, is even to look at some of the things that he proclaims of, you know, the best way to live your life is just never get married. <laughs> so, as, so as far as even gaining sex from that, he moves the opposite direction because as a Jewish leader, he could have gotten married. He could have had all of those experiences, but instead he rejects those for the church that is now taking away his power and his money because he doesn't have those advantages now anymore. So that doesn't make sense either. Then we have James. James is holding a scroll because he wrote the book of James. This is James, who is Jesus' brother or his cousin. The Greek word for when we see him talked about, we're not really sure whether it meant cousin or brother. But we see within scripture that James didn't believe Jesus. 
So he's not one of the followers. At first, we see these proclamations in scripture that say his family didn't believe him. His cousins, his brothers, however you want to translate that, didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So, but he goes from that to not believing he's the Messiah to in Acts when the first council of the church comes together to decide, do we need to follow the Jewish laws or not? Who's in charge? James. Because he's joined the team, he believes that this really happened, and he's willing to die for it, and we have great evidence to say that he died for it. So when it comes to the disciples, we have all of these things that we can actually point out at really good evidence to believe that the disciples died. For most of them, definitely for Paul and definitely for James. There's some of the disciples we're a little less sure about because the stories that we have came well afterwards, and those may have been a little bit more made up. But we have no stories that ever say that any of these guys ever doubted that or were not willing to die for that. You only die for something that you know is true and you care about enough to be willing to die for. So our last point in this is that the tomb itself is empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, if they had the body, what they simply could have done is taken the body and paraded it through the streets. If you and I had attended a funeral last week and some people were telling us that this person now is risen from the dead, what would we probably do first? We'd probably walk to the gravesite and we'd see if the body is still there. And if the body is still there, our investigation's over, right? But what we don't see is there's nothing in any history that proclaims anything like that ever happening. And the mere fact that the church exploded like it did, it would have been clear that you just got a few crazy people that believe that this Jesus guy rose from the dead, but we see otherwise because we have the body. So that clearly didn't happen. Plus, we have enemy attestation that that's really true because when the Roman guard goes to the Jews to say, hey, he's left, what do they tell him? Tell them that the disciples stole the body. They're agreeing the tomb is empty. So they're proclaiming that. And then another thing in this, and this might sound a little twisted, who is the people that first see that the tomb's empty? The women. Now, in our culture, we wouldn't think twice about that. But the fact was, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. Meant nothing. I think maybe the best analogy I can think of now is like if we had a court scene going on and the lawyer brought somebody to the, news to the stand to, to give testimony and we all knew that person was addicted to hallucinogenics. Would we believe what they have to give as a testimony? No, it would mean nothing to us because we would just say it probably is something that's a result of your LSD trip. Now, I'm not trying to say women are addicted to drugs. I'm just trying to give you an analogy to help you kind of wrap your mind around how they would be viewing this. They wouldn't see any reason. So when the disciples say the first people to see that the tomb is empty are the women, that tells you they're telling the truth because if you're making up a story, you don't do something that's going to make you look bad, and that would have been embarrassing to them. If I'm making up a story, instead of writing, and Jesus asked us to pray for him, and I fell asleep, you would write, he asked us to pray for him, and I stayed up and prayed harder than anybody ever has. That's what you would say. 
and you wouldn't say, and the first people to see the tomb was empty was the women. You would say, I ran down there and beat John because I'm faster, and I saw the tomb was empty. That's what you would write. But instead, they say the woman saw the tomb was empty first. So all of that shows us, in the end, that he must have actually risen from the dead. Because now, if I try to throw out any other theory, so the disciples stole the body. That's the first idea somebody might throw out there. Because that's what the Jews started to try to proclaim from the very get-go. So here are five facts. And let, let me remind you of this. When it comes to these five facts, the first four 90% of scholars agree are true, Christian and non-Christian. The last one, about 75% of scholars agree are true. So if you're going to say, I have a different explanation for what happened, then he rose from the dead, you better be able to explain these facts better than the resurrection. And when we start to examine these other theories, it just doesn't add up. So the first one, the disciples stole the body, okay, well, that would make sense of Jesus dying by crucifixion. But that the disciples believed. They stole the body, told everyone that he rose from the dead, and then they're told, I'm going to kill you unless you recant that Jesus rose from the dead. And they knew that they took the body. Are they going to believe that? Are they going to keep proclaiming that? No. They clearly would know because they took the body themselves that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Second, how is that going to convince Paul? Paul's persecuting the church for years afterwards, and suddenly he changes teams, and the body's just stolen. Like, what did he see? There's no evidence, then, of reasons why he would believe this. Last, James believed. Again, he's not on, he's not on the team. He probably knows the disciples well. He knew Jesus well because it's his brother or his cousin. And what would be the reason that he would change teams? The only thing that this ends up really doing is saying yes to that the tomb is empty and that Jesus was crucified. It doesn't give a good explanation of the other facts. Another one just to throw out there, if we thought about hallucination, what if they just imagined it? They, they were on an LSD trip and they imagined it. Well, if that's true, okay, that could make sense that Jesus died by crucifixion. It could explain maybe why the disciples believed, but it's really probably not going to help with Paul, and it's not going to help with James, and it wouldn't explain why the tomb is empty. So any theory that somebody starts to bring out there, we start to see it just doesn't really make sense. And so in all of that, as the worship team comes up, I just want to encourage you to realize, okay, this is the greatest story. This is the greatest story. This is the greatest possibility out there. When we compare all the other worldviews that could possibly true, be true, all the other world religions that could possibly be true, and the story that it proclaims, it might be a good story, but it's not as good as this one. But then this one, <laughs> this one's true. Not only is it the best possibility, it's a true story. So I'm going to finish us in prayer, and then we're going to enter some worship for a while. God, I thank you for the fact that you have brought not only the greatest story into our hands in your scriptures to be able to read it and to know it, but this story is also true.
that we can see that the evidence outweighs any other theories that someone might want to throw out there. That our faith isn't just blind. I don't have to just believe this because I was raised in it. It's not just a faith that when I doubt, I should pray that I can have more faith. I can see that the evidence points towards the truth. God, I pray that this would give us boldness to go and share with others and strengthen our faith in those moments that sometimes we struggle to know and feel that your presence is here. Grow us and strengthen us in the name of your Son who has been raised from the dead. Amen.